Okay, I said all that quick because I want to go slow with my preaching today. Um, Would you listen to the word of God with me? Brent has read from Matthew 3. I'm going to read from Romans 5. Astounding words on the love of God. Pay careful attention to the persons of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son in this text and hear how you have been loved with me. Romans 5, I'll read from 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access, access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This God's word is so helpful and eternally true. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts to you as a people now. I freely confess that my words are useless in, in communicating well the doctrine of who you are and what it means for you to be infinitely perfect in love. And I have been so humbled this week at my inability to do this. So I pray that somehow by the power of your spirit, uh, you would cause our ears and hearts to be moved by what is true, that, that my words would not get in the way of this or be too many, but that the blazingly perfect love of God that has been poured out on us through the Holy Spirit would be what changes us and what we leave with today. I need that too, so hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's preach. Last Sunday, we started through a new preaching series together. This one will run through Advent, and we're swimming deep and and preaching on the doctrine of God, specifically uh, the array of his moral perfections. We started last week with Isaiah's vision of God on his throne. And this is what we said. First and foremost, before anything else, 
the Scripture reveals to us that God, if He is anything, it is what? That He is holy. That's where it begins. Good. Somebody was wrestling with this this week. Yeah. All right. That He is what? Infinitely distinct from and superior to and above all other realities, persons, creatures, created things. And that as a part of that, He is infinitely pure, bright, sinless, holy. His character is without a single spot or wrinkle or hesitation or darkness or compromise. He is holy. And in seeing this holiness of God, we felt these two simultaneous responses in our souls. Trembling and adoration. Or woe and yes. Woe is me. Now that I see the holiness of God, my sinfulness is set in distinct relief and I am finished and undone. I would be consumed, but for his grace, this is a holy God. And yes, this holiness of God is what I was made to enjoy forever. His perfections, his beauty, his glory. His wonder is all satisfying for my soul. So we, we at first would run and hide from this immensely holy God. But then in his grace, we are able to come and worship and adore and have deep affections. That's what we landed with last week. That this holiness would now inform all these other aspects of God that we can just say yes to. Okay, so now here's the question that I get the charge to deal with with you guys today. This God, who is infinitely perfect in holiness, is he also infinitely perfect in love? This God is who's distinct from and superior to all others. Is love an eternal perfection of his holiness? Now, we really hope so, right? We hope so. An all-powerful God who reigns absolutely and sovereignly over all things and does not have love as an essential part of his character, that could be terrifying in the really bad kind of way. Because if you think about it, love does not have to be a part of the doctrine of who God is. He could be without sin. He could be eternally set apart. He could be fully sovereign and superior to, but none of those things necessarily means that he has to be a loving God. So let's start first with just a really straight, basic question. What would have to be true about God for love to be an essential and infinite perfection that belongs to him? All right. Well, the answer is that he would have to be a personal God who has existed his entire existence in a community of love being given and being received. Without those things, you, you can't really talk about love being an infinite perfection of God's. All right, now we get that right away when we think about the doctrines of God that posit for us that he is like the force from Star Wars, that he is just a nebulous, divine not even a he and it thing out there. And we know that the force, while it can help you, man, hit the bullseye with the Death Star, it cannot really love you. 
embrace you, engage you. It is impersonal. That deity cannot be infinitely loving. There's no person there. But think even with me about non-Christian, non-biblical theism for a minute. Non-Christian theism insists that there is a God, a single God, who rules the world, and that that God is infinitely and utterly and eternally one. The theological way that we would talk about that is to say that is God as monad. Anyone ever heard that word before? All right, I heard it this week. In other words, a divine entity, a divine being, who in the eternity past was all alone as God, with no other in the picture, no other to love, no other to have fellowship with, no other to communicate with, no other to have to consider or take into account with an infinitely solitary God like that, love cannot be something that is essential to his being as God. If love came and was a part of who he was, it would only kick in, it would only be there if it did kick in when some other got created. Without an other, you cannot be love, you cannot have love. And so for a monadic God to be perfect in love, it would have to be a God who changes in time, who needs the world in order to uh, grow into his self-realization as who he is as God. God only becomes personal with the help of his creation. So you could say it like this. Stick with me. We're doing the doctrine of God. If we wanted that God to be perfect in love, We would have to demote him ontologically, make him less than distinct from and superior to and independent of in order to promote him ethically and have him be love. He could be loving, but he couldn't hang on to his holy otherness because that love would be dependent upon you or me or something else existing for it to actually begin to exist. So I'll say it simply. We can't even talk about God being infinitely perfect in love if he is infinitely singular. Okay. But with the God of the Bible, we have something very different going on. Something radical, something pretty cool, something amazing. In the scriptures, God reveals himself as being eternally one and eternally three. It is not God as monad, but God as Trinity. Okay, before I keep going, let me remind us that as we press into the doctrine of God, brain freeze is never far behind. Do you guys know what this is? So a couple of weeks ago, I went to BJ's. It was 167 degrees out. And the first thing I saw was this Slurpee machine or icy machine. And so BJ's is oversized. I bought a red strawberry Slurpee that was about this big. And I drank two-thirds of it at once. And as soon as you let go of the straw, what happens? You feel it coming. It starts in your teeth. It moves up to your gums. It hits your sinuses, and you go, no. And then what happens to your brain? Boom. And you're standing in public in BJ's, and your head is freezing, and you're about to pass out, and you're just waiting for that to pass. Okay. 
that kind of thing will happen to your brain as you begin to press into the doctrine of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We say it like this, the doctrine of God necessarily terminates where? In mystery, and that's a good thing. You will not be able to figure this out. You can wrestle with it, but it ends with you unable to get your pea brain around it. That's okay. We're going to continue the mind, the doctrine of God, and let that mystery drive us to worship. Okay, so when we say that God is triune, triune, here's what we mean. We mean that the one God has existed eternally as three persons. That God is one in his essence or his being, but three in person. God is and always has been Father. God is and always has been Son. God is and always has been Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, different in person, and both in His unity and in His diversity, there is ultimateness. They are both from the beginning together. You cannot separate them and say, well, there's three gods. You cannot flatten them and say there's only a singular monadic reality. He is a God who has revealed himself on the pages of scripture to be, here's the word, a Trinitarian God. Is your brain okay? All right. Now we could say a million beautiful things about this truth of who God is, I just want to stick to one thing with you today. We'll keep it simple. The truth that God is triune means that he has existed infinitely in community. That he has not been alone forever, but with forever. That there has eternally been an other there in God. And that means that it is at least possible for us to even talk about God being infinitely perfect in love. The nature of God is such that he is capable of infinite love because he is infinite community. Okay. Now that is really good news, but it gets even better. Not only is our God capable of being infinitely perfect in love, but he actually is. Again, didn't have to be. The Father and the Son and the Spirit could have been in community, in relationship forever, and it could have been like a bad season of Big Brother. Could have felt like that. Just because they were in community does not mean that they had to love each other perfectly. Could have been what? Cranky, ornery, selfish, combative. Two of them could have gotten together and teamed up on the other one frequently in God history. They could have been jealous of each other's glory, sought to surpass each other in honor, vied for supremacy, delighted in their own person above the others. All of this is potential in community. But none of this is what has happened. Because we begin with God as perfectly holy. And so the Father and the Son and the Spirit have not only been in community forever. But that community has been marked by perfect unity. Perfect selflessness. Perfect oneness. Perfect harmony. Perfect 
love. Okay, Jesus says it like this in John 17. He's praying for us. He says, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is deep and beautiful stuff right here. Can you hear that? What defines the relationship of the Father and the Son infinitely? What is it? Love. From before the foundation of the world, before any created thing, before you, before me, before this world, before anything, God was love. Love is an essential component to his character. It is not an add-on. God is and always has been love. And we get a delightful taste of this Trinitarian love of God throughout the Gospels. I'll just give you a few examples. Let some of this sink in. So in John 3, we hear Jesus say these words. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, can you feel the fierceness, the depth of the love of the Father for the Son in that kind of a text? It begins with just that beautiful, powerful statement. The Father is full of delight for and affections toward and love of the Son. And so much so that he does what? He freely and gladly gives all things into his hands. That's a theme in scripture, right? The Father gives creation to the Son. All things were created for Christ and by Christ. The Father in redemptive history gives a bride to the Son. All authority in heaven and earth are given by the Father to the Son. Are you feeling this theme? He so trusts the Son. He so delights in the Son. He so loves the Son that he freely gives all things into his hands. And he fiercely defends the honor of the Son. Did you hear that in there? Whoever does not obey, value, delight in the Son, the wrath of God is on that person. That's the Father refusing to allow the glory of the Son to be trampled upon by anyone. Jesus is worthy of obedience from all creatures. When the Father sees someone refusing to honor the Son the way that they should, His wrath burns against them in holy love for His Son. Guys, this is how it has been forever. The Father loving the Son, giving the Son, upholding the honor of the Son. And... The Son is the same way with the Father. We see Jesus' love for the Father in his perfect obedience. In John 14, Jesus says this, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Don't you love that? The Son loves the Father so much, trusts the Father so much, 
wants so badly for the Father to have joy and to be pleased that he willingly obeys the Father at every point. What is it that triggers Jesus' perfect obedience for the Father? His perfect love for the Father. We see Jesus' love for the Father in the zeal that he had for his glory. I love in John 2 where he recounts the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of all the sinful stuff that had made its way into that court. And at the end, John says, his disciples saw this and they remembered it was written, zeal for his father's house would consume him. Don't you love that? The son loves the father. Nothing is more valuable to him than the Father and his name and his glory and his honor. So much so that what does he do when he sees it being spat upon in the temple courts? In holy love for the Father, he brings a cleansing. We see Jesus' love for the Father in his insistence that everything that he is doing, he is doing to make the Father known. Have you heard this refrain in the Gospels? Jesus says, I I don't do anything on my own accord. I only do what the Father has given me to do. I don't say anything on my own accord. I say what I hear the Father saying. I don't act in my own accord. I act on behalf of the Father to glorify the Father. I love that. Jesus' greatest joy was in making the Father's glory and worth known. God the Father, so precious, so valuable to me that I'm going to put him on display with all of my life and all of my actions. And of course, in the same way, the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And we think in terms of the Holy Spirit being the quieter member of the Trinity. I get that. But as you read through the Gospels, Every time you see the Father and the Son acting together, who is there with them, enabling, participating, gladly beside them and with them for their glory? It's God the Spirit. He's been that way since creation, hovering over the waters, delighting in participating in the creation of all things with the Father and the Son. And you know how it is the Holy Spirit who accomplishes the work of grace in our souls. Why? Because he delights in the Father. He delights in the Son. His love for them is selfless and perfect. He is always there, always working with, always being for, always holding up, never dissenting. You guys, this is what it has been like with God forever. Now, one of the clearest displays of this Trinitarian love that we get in the Scriptures is what Brent had read through before. It's given, us to, given it to us at Jesus' baptism. Remember the scene here. Jesus, in perfect obedience to the Father, has taken on flesh and come to walk in our shoes to save us, to bring us back to God. He is about to commence on his public ministry. It is going to be a difficult, arduous nasty, hard, painful journey that he will endure that will ultimately end up with him crucified like a common criminal. And just before this redemptive journey of Jesus begins, 
the Father and the Son show up to express their solidarity with, their delight in, and their love for the Son. Jesus comes to be baptized, and John says, there's no way I'm baptizing you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, John, do it so that righteousness can be fulfilled. Christ is baptized, identifying fully with us, ready to complete his mission. And what happens? Matthew says that the Spirit of God, descending like a dove, came to rest on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Man, we should really, really let our souls take in what is happening in this scene. God the Father is expressing His infinite love for the Son. This is my beloved. This is He. And I delight in Him. My deepest affections are for Him. I affirm Him. I am so pleased by Him. He is so beautiful and and glorious and perfectly obedient and selfless. I love the Son. And there is Jesus in the water receiving this love of the Father, acting in perfect, humble obedience to Him in this moment. And there is the Spirit descending on Jesus, embracing Him enveloping him, resting on him, expressing his oneness with the Father and the Son and his eternal delight in the person of Jesus. Seven Mile Road, this is who your God is. Father, Son, and Spirit, infinitely perfect in their love for each other. Okay, now when we see this, we begin to warm up our brains and dwell on this and feel it in our souls. Our hearts should leap inside of us and say, I want in on that love. I want in on that love. I want to love like that and I want to be loved like that right there. I want to hear the Father say those words about me, my beloved, in whom I delight and I am pleased. I want to be like Jesus who can stand before the Father in perfect obedience and receive his love. I want the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in and rest on and envelop me in affectionate delight and love. I want to enter into that Trinitarian love. But what's the problem? As soon as we even say that or think that, we know that there is no way that that can actually happen. If God the Father was to rend the heavens, and if God the Spirit was to come near us, our response would not be what Jesus's was at the day of his baptism. Our response would be what Isaiah's was last week with his vision of God. The the Father cannot say those words to us. I am well pleased with all that you are. We're sinners. 
Those would be lies. The Holy Spirit of God cannot come near us in that way. It would not be a delightful experience of love. We would be toast in the oven because of his holiness and our sin. We have not loved the Father the way we were made to like Jesus has. And so we would find ourselves forever longing to but unable to get in on this infinite, perfect community of love. Except for this good news. So I've given you two good pieces of news so far. The first is that God is capable of being infinitely perfect in love. We could sing and shout just about that. The second is that not only is he capable, but he is infinitely perfect in love for himself, within himself, forever. But the third is this, that the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Spirit, Spirit, the Spirit for the Son, the Son for the Father. This love is so intense and so huge and so massive that it could not end from Father to Son, but resulted in the adoption of many sons, millions of sons whose salvation would bear witness to the supreme love of the Father for the Son. I'll say it a bunch of different ways. I'll say it like this. That the good news is that the Father's affection for the Son is so great that it doesn't stop there, but it flows through Christ to countless others who can now bear that same image back to the Father that he will delight in forever. I'll say it like this. The Spirit's affection for the Son is so deep and magnificent and great that he is going to save and seal and sanctify a people, a bride that can be given to the Son, that he might have joy. We could keep playing this back and forth. It is the love of Father for Son, Son for Father, Spirit for Father and Son that overflows the banks of the Godhead and finds its way into redeeming you and me into that love. Undeserving sinners get caught up by and actually invited into this drama of love as it spirals out from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, down to us. This is what we mean when we say God loves us. Would you think of the Father's love for you in the gospel? He did not spare this son whom he was one with and delighted in forever, but freely gave him up to death on a cross for you. The father loves you. Think of the love of the son that has overflowed those banks and found its way down to you. Jesus did not count that equality that he had with God, that oneness, as something to be held onto, but he emptied himself of it and took on flesh to walk in your shoes and bear your sin. And on the cross to be forsaken by the Father in that moment, that infinitely perfect love surrendered that we might be able to enter into it. Jesus became a curse that you might receive the blessing of the love of God. And think of the love of the Spirit for you. Tenderly, 
gently sealing your salvation, counseling you, indwelling you. His love for you is as warm and as tender and as large and as personal as the love of the Father for you and the love of the Son for you. We are on the receiving end of the infinitely perfect love of God. Now, we should be overwhelmed by that thought, just speechless, and we should really seek to have hearts that begin to receive it rightly. We don't do that too well in our day. In our day, we talk all about this love of God, but we receive it in a very proud and a very sloppy way. Now, by proud, I mean this. We love to talk about God's love for us without any reference to his love for himself first and eternally. We love to talk about God's love for me without any reference to his prior Trinitarian love. And in doing so, we remove everything I've said so far and we dumb down the love of God to just and only being about us. We think like this, wow, look how much God loves me. I must be really valuable. I must be really beautiful. I must be something else if he went through all that redemptive work for me. And that leads us to a sloppiness in our response to God's love. We figure this, well, look, if God loved us while we were yet sinners, I guess it doesn't really matter how we act now. God is love. I can do what I want, and he's just going to keep loving me because he's so fierce in his love for me. It doesn't matter. And we end up talking about the love of God, but infringing upon the cost of that love and being presumptuous about what that love actually entails and taking that love for granted in a proud and a sloppy way. Man, as soon as we begin to respond to the love of God that way, to think that way about the love of God, we miss the point that it is an infinitely perfect Trinitarian love that we are invited into. If we ever find ourselves thinking about God's love for us in a way that puffs us up or assumes that there must be something in us that is intrinsically valuable, we've lost our bearings in this whole doctrine of the love of God. Trinitarian gospel love is not primarily about me or you. God's love has always been and always will be centered not in us, but in himself. The ground of this infinitely perfect love that I'm talking about today is the infinite worth of the persons of the Godhead, not the infinite worth of us. God's love for us is derivative to his love for himself. And when I start to say things like that, it does what? It offends our pride. It stumbles our sensibilities about how valuable we are that God loves us. But that offending of your pride is really fantastic news. The reason that we can enter into the love of God is because through the gospel, we have come into Christ. And so the Father 
can now love us as he loves the Son and has done so forever. He can look at and delight in us, not because we are great, but because his Son is great and we are being conformed to his image by his Spirit. That is a love that we should not receive proud and sloppy, but humble and holy. Realizing that we are not the central point of the love of God, but that in very costly grace, we have gotten caught up into that love. I'll say it like this. We've got a new song coming today. We'll sing it next as we come to the sacrament. The first line in the song is this. He is jealous for me. Now, is it good to sing a line like that in a song? Is that something that we should dwell on and embrace and shout? He is jealous for me. It is. But it is good to sing a line like that only if we sing it humbly and remember who is the Father's jealous love for first, infinitely, perfectly, and foremost. Not first for us, first for his son. He is jealous for me because he is infinitely perfect in his love for the son. And he has chosen to make his worth known by bringing millions, including me, into conformity with his image so that they can give him glory and participate in his love forever. Now, we can't sing all that in a song. You know, it doesn't rhyme and stuff. So we just say, he is jealous for me. But what is the ground of that jealousy that is yours in the gospel? It is not your worth. It is his worth. It is Trinitarian love. Another line in that song. I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Again, is that something that we can gladly and joyfully sing together? Yes, at the top of our lungs over and over and over again. As long as you see clearly that God's affections for you are derivative of, they flow from the Father's affections for the Son and the Son's affections for the Father and the Spirit's affections for the Father and the Son. Now, does that diminish his affections for you because you get wrapped up into something that existed before you? No. In fact, it makes God's love for you a a million times more rich and beautiful and deep because you are being called into an infinite and perfect love. You have done nothing. You can do nothing to deserve or to compel the love of the Lord for you. But that's fine because of the nature of the gospel of grace. The truth that the the love of God for you is grounded in his love for himself and is therefore perfect and unchangeable is the good news of the gospel. It's news that we need to meet with ravished, humble, affectionate hearts. Is God love? Yes. He is infinitely perfect 
in love. And that perfect love has overflown the banks of the Trinity and found its way into your soul and into mine. He is jealous for me. His affections are for me because I am in Christ. And as his people, we get to receive that love. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that these sermons are not happy, clappy, and practical, that they're deep, that the love of God is something way bigger than any of us has even begun to scratch the surface on. But I do pray that in the same way you have existed forever, forever as a covenantal community of love, that Seven Mile Road Church, this, this little expression here of your body, would also get caught up in that covenantal community of love by being justified by faith and brought into Christ. We need more than anything to believe that God loves us. I die today if I don't know that's true, Father. And in the gospel, you have declared your love for us. This perfect love of yours has driven down into my soul, into our souls. I pray that we would become a people who humbly and wholly receive that. And I pray for those who have not yet received your love, that they would be driven to their knees in awe, marveling that you are holy and you are love. And a way has been made for them to enter into that love the cross of Jesus Christ, where you didn't spare your only son, but gave him up that we might be included in your love. Help us to live from that reality, I pray. Amen.